This is Colonia Cast episode 32. Today we are joined by Dr. Anders Rodin, um, who has a very extensive resume in turtle and tortoise conservation. Uh, he's an orthopedic surgeon, um, as well as the founder and director of the Colonian Research Foundation. He's also the founding editor of Colonian Conservation and Biology, the journal that many people listening to this are very familiar with. Um, he's also chairman emeritus of the ICN Turtle and Tortoise Specialist Group um, and has done many other things in the realm of turtle and tortoise conservation and research. Uh, we're really honored to have him on today to talk about his work um, and uh, some of the other things he's done. Um, so I guess just to start us off, uh, Dr. Rodin, um, how did you sort of get involved with uh, turtle and tortoise conservation? Uh, I think you're originally from um, Sweden, and that's not an area with many turtles, so it's kind of an interesting thing there. Uh, and then maybe also because your primary profession was not necessarily turtle and tortoise research conservation, what made you decide to pursue another sort of discipline uh, and career uh, at the same time? Well, thanks, Michael. Um, first, let me mention that I'm sitting right now in Vermont, uh, looking out my window here. There's a lot of snow and cold and uh, very far from, um, you know, turtle-type uh, territory. Um, but it's nice to join all you guys. I guess most of you guys are down south, Georgia, et cetera, um, so in, in real turtle territory. So, yeah, um, I was born and raised in Sweden. Um, came to the U.S. when I was eight years old um, and lived outside New York City. Um, and I had zero contact with turtles for most of my um, uh, developing years. Um, uh, all through high school, I had no interest in turtles whatsoever. Um, uh, went to college. Um, uh, and um, in my senior year um, uh, in college, I first began to get interested in turtles. And the interesting thing was, uh, you may know Russ Mittermeier, uh, a fairly prominent name in, in uh, turtles and anthropology, physical anthropology, primates and uh, uh, conservation efforts. Uh, he used to be the president of Conservation International. He and I uh, lived right across the hall from each other in a dormitory uh, where we were undergraduates uh, up at Dartmouth in uh, New Hampshire. Uh, and I had gotten sort of interested in animal behavior. I thought animal behavior was really sort of a cool thing. Um, and I was very interested in, in lemurs from Madagascar. And so I took a course uh, in the spring of my senior year. Uh, Russ was a teaching assistant because um, he was already specializing in monkeys. Um, and um, I did a lot of work on social behavior on lemurs. Um, I did, wrote a thesis on them. Um, but the interesting thing was that the teacher um, also had an aquarium in the classroom that had three small red-eared sliders. And uh, amazingly enough, I got interested in them. I thought they were looked sort of cool. They were beautiful. And, uh, at the end of the course, the uh, teacher said, listen, uh, we're heading out to the summer. Uh, I can't keep these turtles here um, you know, while I'm away. Does anyone want them? And my hand shot up and I asked to get these three red-eared sliders. And I brought them home uh, to my dorm room and uh, got an aquarium and put them in there. And then I asked Russ, who was my, my good buddy, I said, and he knew a lot about turtles. I said, so what are these turtles? You know, what do you, what do you call them? He said, well, they're called red-eared sliders. I said, no, no, no. I want to know the scientific name 
for these things because I think that would be really cool. So he said, well, they are pseudomies, scripta, elegans. And back in those days, that's what they were. And so I said, okay, now how do you spell that? And I, I wrote it down in a piece of paper and I pasted it on the side of the aquarium. And, and frankly, that moment in my life was when I got interested in taxonomy and naming things and scientific names and, and, and the way you describe things. So that was just sort of the start of things. I, it didn't really build, though, um, for a while. Um, both Russ and I were interested in lemurs and primates. I'd written to Diane Fossey. Remember the lady, Diane Fossey, who worked on mountain gorillas? Uh, I wrote to her as a senior uh, at Dartmouth saying, hey, uh, I'm going to be free for the summer. Um, I'm not sure what I'm doing in the fall. I'm thinking about medical school. I'm thinking about zoology. I'm not really sure. But I'd love to come to the Congo and help you, you know, do mountain gorilla work. You know, I'm happy to volunteer. And I've just done this big project on, on social behavior and, and uh, lemurs on Madagascar. And so I thought maybe I'd go there. Um, but she wrote me back and said, sorry, uh, full up. Uh, we don't need anyone right now. So instead, Russ and I, um, after we graduated, uh, we decided to head down to the Amazon, uh, South America. We did about a, a month and a half uh, trip all around South America, um, you know, living on a dollar a day, um, uh, living in remote places. Um, he was looking for a study site to study monkeys because he had he was going to go to graduate school and do monkeys. Um, I wasn't sure what the hell I was going to do. I was trying to decide between medicine and zoology. Uh, and um, we traveled down the Amazon from uh, Colombia down to Manaus. And in Manaus, we hired a local guide um, uh, who took us upriver uh, into uh, really very primitive areas. Uh, and we spent uh, about a week or so uh, in, in a canoe uh, living in uh, native huts, uh, staying with uh, local um, Caboclo families. Um, and in one of those places uh, where we saw a lot of crocodiles and um, uh, just incredible wildlife, the family had a small yellow-footed tortoise, a chabuchi um, uh, a pet um, tied to the center pole of their hut. And I fell in love with this little tortoise. And, you know, the, the mother and the family saw that I liked it and asked me whether I wanted it. And I said, sure. And so she gave me the tortoise and the, the little kid whose pet it was cried. Um, but but I, I decided to take the tortoise with me. Uh, and I did. Uh, stuck it in my pocket. Traveled all over South America with Russ. Uh, eventually headed back to the States with the tortoise still in my pocket. And these were pre-CITES days. Uh, tortoises were not yet listed, you know, by CITES. I could, um, I, I didn't have to declare it. It was not illegal. It was like what we did in those days. Um, brought it back to the U.S. and then uh, headed off to medical school uh, in Sweden. Uh, I'd started medical school in Sweden because it was cheap. It cost me nothing. I had a grandmother who had an apartment right down the street from the medical school. It wasn't going to cost me anything to live there. And uh, I sort of spoke Swedish a, a bit, and I had not lived in Sweden for about 12, 13 years. I decided it'd be fun to go back there and try. So I went back to Sweden. I, I set this uh, tortoise up in a terrarium and absolutely fell in love with it um, and decided, you know, based upon my previous experience with the red-eared sliders, I wanted to know more about turtles and tortoises. So I contacted Russ and I said, listen, I, I, this is really cool stuff. I need a book 
to read uh, to find out about turtles and tortoises. And so Russ told me, you'd got to buy Peter Pritchard's Living Turtles of the World book. And we took it out just two years earlier. And so I bought it. And I came back to the States like for Christmas. And I, I bought it, found it in a pet shop and brought it back to Sweden and devoured it. It was like, oh, my God. I, I couldn't believe how many different kinds of turtles there were. Uh, and wonderful photographs and pictures and drawings of really weird turtles that, you know, I thought, oh, my God, do things like this really exist? So um, after I finished that book, I contacted Russ again. I said, well, now, now what do I read next? And he said, well, you need Boulanger's Catalog of the Chelonians from 1889, you know, the, the British Museum book um, that lists all these different species and all the different synonymies and has you know, very scientific uh, skull drawings and stuff like that. Uh, and once again, I, I really got hooked um, and uh, decided that I really wanted to pursue turtle work. So by this time, not only was I in medical school, I knew, I mean, I was knew I was going into medicine, but I wanted to explore my interest in turtles. So Russ had gone off to Harvard uh, to study uh, anthropology, but he was working in the herpetology division at the Museum of Comparative Zoology because uh, that's where his heart was. Uh, and he was, uh, you know, good friends with the professor there, Ernest Williams. Uh, and when Russ and I had been to South America, we'd done some collecting of uh, some herps for Ernest. And so Ernest knew me a little bit. Uh, and I said to Russ, can you please get me a summer job at Harvard at the Museum of Comparative Zoology? And he did talk to Ernest. Ernest gave me a job. And I showed up there in the early summer of 72, uh, and because Ernest knew that I was studying medicine uh, and he assumed I was interested in anatomy um, and skeletons and things like that, he said to me, all right, listen, I'm going to be gone for the summer. Your job while I'm gone is to take this pile of turtles that are sitting over here that just came in from New Guinea. And we don't have enough storage place for all these turtles. So I want you to prepare skeletons of, of many of them so that they're easier to store. So I said, okay. Uh, and I started skeletonizing turtles. And I sat there for the summer. I got married that summer too, which was uh, somewhat of a distraction, I guess. Uh, but uh, uh, enjoyed doing the skeletonizing and preparing skulls and shells and all that kind of stuff. And at the end of the summer, Ernest comes back and walks in and says, okay, show me what you've been doing. So I showed him all this, you know, these, this big pile of turtles I've been skeletonizing. And he said, okay. What are they? I said, well, I don't know. Turtles from New Guinea. He said, well, listen, you got to figure out what they are. I want you to identify the turtles you worked on. So I was like, oh, shit. You know, uh, I never tried to do anything like that. So I called Russ. Um, the two of us spent several days down there in the basement of the MZZ, um, creating piles of turtles, you know. Amadura subglobosa here, I'll say Nova Guinea over there, Kelodyna seven rocky over here, Kelodyna rugosa here, Kelodyna nova Guinea over there. Um, and then we had, at the end, we had several piles. Uh, and uh, so we called Ernest down and said, all right, Ernest, we've, we've figured out what, what all these turtles are. And here's the species and here's that species. And this is the reason why we think this is this one or this one, et cetera, et cetera. And, of course, we had one pile that we had no idea what they were. They looked different from everything else. And so we pointed to that pile and said to Ernest, well, listen, you know, 
we cannot figure out what this final pile here is. You know, we have no idea. And he said, well, what do you think? Well, we were thinking, well, maybe it's a new species. And so we, we dared to say, well, maybe it's a new species. And he said, well, yeah, I, I think it is too. And like, we were amazed. Oh my God, Dr. Williams, you know, you got to describe this because he described several species. And he was world famous. And so you got to describe this. Oh my God, that's so cool. We found this. You got to describe it. He says, uh-uh, not me, you. Um, and he challenged us to describe this new species. And we said, well, how do you describe a new species? And he said, well, you got you to gotta figure it out. And that was his only advice, figure it out. Um, and frankly, you know, being young students at the time, uh, it was exactly the ins kind of inspiration we needed and wanted. We spent four years, four years figuring out how to describe a new species, doing the description, uh, doing the, you know, the skeletonization, the, the skulls, the specific, the drawings, the, uh, the, you know, the morphometrics, all that. Kind of, this is all before genetics, so we don't deal with that. Um, but it was a, it was a good description, and we described Caledonia parkeri, you know, four years after discovering it. And frankly, when you're a medical student and a primatologist, and you come out and describe a new species, and a, a well-described new species, um, it set us on a path of um, becoming, you know, accepted and, and respected as turtle taxonomists. Um, and it gave us entree into the, into the field. Um, and... Uh, things took off from there um you know and the more you learn about something the more you want to know about whatever it is you're delving into and little by little you know uh, Ernest turned some of his other old notes over to us and we described a, a bunch of other species um including a couple that Ernest had thought were new uh, back in the 50s but he had never gotten around to finishing and so we described Fernops Williams eye and Achanthochelys, macrocephala, and then uh, Chelidina, Pritchardi, and Macordi, etc. So the, so my my life in turtles started in taxonomy, you know, and I, I was not interested in conservation at all to begin with. That's a really interesting gateway into it. Uh, just all those little kind of encounters over time. Yeah. What made you still want to pursue medical school? sort of with that because a lot of people would just kind of follow that path but you also did this i mean that's a lot to deal with what what was the it was a lot to deal with uh, but i was conflicted um as i finished up college I, I thought i wanted to go into zoology um i also liked medicine and you know my dad had been a, an md phd uh, my dad taught medical school uh and so i'd always lived in a family where you know he was not a practicing physician. He was an academic, you know, uh, physician and teaching medical school. So I'd always sort of tended in that direction. There was always, you know, a gentle, you know, you know how it is with parents. They, they gently, gently pressure you to do what it is they want. But little by little, um, I realized that uh, medicine uh, was a good choice. And, and frankly, uh, at one point, just before I made my final decision, I sat down with my dad and, and talked with him and asked him what he thought. Should I go into zoology? I'd been accepted at a, uh, in a graduate program for zoology, or should I go into medicine? I'd been accepted into two medical schools. Um, and, you know, I don't remember his exact words, but essentially what he said to me was, he said, you know, listen, if you go into zoology, you'll never be able to, you know, treat people, humans. 
Um, and you may do really well in zoology, but I'll tell you, a lot of zoologists don't do all that well, and they struggle, um, and uh, they tend to have to ask for grants to support most of the work they really want to do. Uh, and so you may be happy, you may like it. But I'll tell you, if you go into medicine um, and you do well in medicine, you'll be well off financially, probably. Uh, and then, frankly, on the side, you can pursue zoology, you can pursue your turtle studies, uh, anything you want. And, you know, um, you're probably not going to have to ask for grants to get it. You'll be able to support your own work. Uh, and I thought that was pretty wise. Uh, and so that's what I did. I enjoy medicine. I, luckily, I found a part of medicine that I really enjoy. Orthopedics is a, is a wonderful specialty uh, because it's very uh, anatomic and uh, people get better and uh, you can fix people. Um, it's not like dealing with people who are you know dying and you're uh, trying very hard just to, to prolong their lives but uh, you can really make a difference and so i enjoyed orthopedics it was, it was a great uh, profession and uh, except for when i was really doing my residency training and early practice years when i really had to focus on you know building a practice etc uh, it gave me time to pursue turtle work and the turtle work i was i was pursuing early on was taxonomy work. And so I didn't have to go out into the field. I didn't have to run around the world, uh, you know, doing conservation work. I looked at turtle specimens. I was able to borrow specimens from museums all over the world. And I would sit and do my, you know, morphometric analyses and describe new species and stuff like that. So that's how I got started. That eventually changed, of course. Yeah, as you say. Were there any times when it was when you wanted to travel, that sort of thing, and it was just conflicting or uh, for the most part, those two different pathways sort of worked well together? They, they, they were parallel prof parallel professions is the way I've always described. They really were. Um, the turtles um, took a long time before they became more of a truly professional endeavor. Um, at first, they were just, you know, a little bit on the side. And, and just the taxonomy. I was not really part of uh, a, the larger turtle conservation world, not at all. I was very much a niche niche player um, doing just the, the taxonomy. Um, but I had some experiences that changed my view on all that. Um, and uh, I might, might want to tell one of those stories. Um, Peter Pritchard became a very good friend. Uh, First, I'd you know read his book, and um, then back in 1979, I actually met him. I went to a, a conference in Florida, and uh, he was presenting on sea turtles, and I was along to uh, talk about leatherback turtles because I I'd started doing some work on leatherbacks, and I saw him, and I dared to go up to him. He's taller than I am, uh, and so I felt a little intimidated, but um, um, I introduced myself and. We hit it off right away. He was an amazing man uh, who uh, welcomed people of all kinds into his sphere. Um, and uh, it took about two, three years. Uh, and then in 1982, um, the first year that I'd established my practice in orthopedic surgery, I'd finished my residency. I was finally in practice. I was finally earning a, a reasonable living. Um, 
he invited me to go down to the Galapagos with him. And so he and I traveled around the Galapagos. We were with a, an Audubon tour, but he was the, the main guy. And uh, after the tour, uh, he was able to secure permission to go to Pinzon Island, Duncan Island, uh, which is off limits to all tourists because he had good contacts with the Galapagos uh, uh, National Park. And so he and I went out to Duncan Island to um, look for um, ancient native um, uh, Duncanans is the species that occurs there. And we, we uh, hiked that island uh, for many hours and got up to the very top in the back part, uh, very arid, very dry, um, incredibly hot day. And we found these old tortoises, uh, these old hundred year uh, old tortoises living under rocks. And uh, I remember distinctly um, sitting there on a rock with one of these ancient tortoises at my feet, looking out over the island and the ocean in the background and thinking what an incredible place this is. And what an incredible situation to be in. And I knew that Duncanensis was in huge trouble. Um, this was before they had eradicated the rats. Uh, there were no living Duncanensis uh, hatching out. Uh, these ancient animals were gradually dying out. Uh, the Charles Darwin Research Station had begun a breeding program, but not yet all that successful. And I thought about the fact that here we're sitting in this incredible place and the species at my feet may go extinct. And I, Jesus, you know, we, we have to do something. And, and conservation is what we need to focus on. It's, it's not enough to just identify and describe new species. Uh, what's important is to preserve, protect, and save them. Because um, otherwise, you know, it's like, yeah, classify another dinosaur that's long gone. What's the joy in that, you know? So that changed my way of thinking. That was 1982. Um, and ever since then, I've been more and more involved in conservation. Um, I joined the uh, freshwater um, turtle specialist group the year before 1981, when it was first founded. Uh, but when I joined that, it was mainly as a taxonomist now, little by little, I began to get more and more interested in conservation of turtles and tortoises. And the rest of my career pretty much has been focused on that, although I still do some taxonomy on the side. Although now with genetics, I'm <clears throat> feeling increasingly left behind in terms of that kind of stuff. Yeah. I, uh, I actually went to the Galapagos last summer and I was just, just mostly as a tourist, so I couldn't, I couldn't go to Duncan Island, but that's one of my all-time dreams is to see the tortoises on that island. I, I mean, I was, I've got Pritchard's book right here. I was going to ask you about that exact situation. Uh, yeah, that must be amazing. If I had the money, I would go back this year with James Gibbs and all that yeah. and get involved in the yeah. work that they're doing. Well, James, James is a great guy to, to hook up with. Uh, um, yeah, he's, he's really amazing. Um, Linda Coyote was there when Peter and I were there, and, and she was the one who helped us. And then uh, um, another fellow, too, whose name escapes me right now. Um, but, yeah, there's something special about seeing these 
greater than 100 year old shrunken tortoises. They were really small. Um, uh, and uh, uh, the, they had begun repatriating some of the captive bred um, uh, tortoises, which was the uh, supposedly the scientific reason we went there to, uh, to see how the, those repatriated animals were doing. And they were big. They were much bigger than the, the native ones. Um, and we think that had to do with, you know, captive breeding and, uh, you know, um, our artificial uh, diets and, you know, ad lib feedings and, and things like that. Uh, but yeah, yeah, what an experience. Of course, the other part of that experience is this, it, we had to rent a boat to get there. And it was a very unseaworthy boat. We got there safely, fine, but on the way back, we nearly capsized and nearly drowned. Um, very scary. Um, I was sure I was going to die within sight of Duncan Island. Um, yeah, uh, and the the power in the boat failed, uh, and uh, stormy seas, and we were rocking like a like a cork. Um, and uh, I, I thought it was going to be all over, but the guys that we were with, uh, uh, they managed to figure out how to steer by using twin motors alternating because uh, the rudder had broken. Um, and uh, yeah, we got back safe. Uh, thank God for that. Um, but yeah, the Galapagos are a wonderful place to go. I, although the, the just the regular tourist places, it, it gets a little tiring. I've done that twice. And, and both times with Peter, we headed off and um, did other things <laughs> that we weren't supposed to. But that was inspiring. Yeah. Did, did you ever see Were you with Odin? I'm sorry. I was going to I was going to Yeah, go ahead. No, uh did you ever see Onan the famous Onan. Onan. Odin is the yeah. Norse god. Uh Onan okay. was the uh Duncan Island tortoise uh that's very famous that Peter photographed. Did not see him. Nope. Uh, oh. I think he was either gone by the time we were there. Or we just didn't see him, didn't find him. Interesting. But that's an amazing photograph that Peter has of him. Were you, did you ever get to see Peter like bringing some of that stuff back, like his physical specimens and remains? Because that's quite a feat that he managed to get anything like any of these sizable specimens back from the Galapagos, even in yeah. the 80s. Like, yeah. Yes, I, I was with him when he collected a shell on Duncan. I have photographs of him with a shell strapped to his backpack. Yeah. I don't think it was exactly, it was not exactly kosher, but it was certainly the wise thing to do to save specimens like that. Yeah. And uh, that may be the one that he left at the Charles Darwin Research Station. In fact, he collected, I think, the only female known of uh, the Abingdon Island uh, uh, tortoise and brought that back to the, the station. Uh, but then when he came back later, a few years later, it found that uh, it had not been taken care of and it had disintegrated, which is too bad. That's, that hurts to hear. Yeah, we've spent, uh, Jack and I have spent a good deal of time in uh, Peter's collection of um, specimens, uh, helped move them uh, to where they are now, and just seeing oh, all the oh, stuff. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. to, see all the things he managed to collect it's pretty incredible and just the yeah the duncanensis shell that he has that might be the same yeah. one that it is the same one yeah, yeah. he and i uh, we collected that together um like i said i i photographed to prove it 
Yeah. That's uh, very interesting. Yeah. So, and that's sort of a good um, talking about kind of the, and I think the emotional appeal there too, there's even kind of being in the Galapagos in a place where, yeah, it's just these, these tortoises are barely hanging on. It's sort of seems like it shouldn't be touched by humans, but yet it is. And they're not in a good situation that that sort of opens your eyes to conservation. What, um, and I think that's a justification in itself, that kind of the, the, the beauty aspect of things and not trying to destroy it. But what what other justifications, if any, do you have for why conserve turtles? Why is sort of why is that something that's important that should be important? Well, people people talk about things like, well, you know, their ecological role uh, and, you know, um, potential for. I don't know, medicines and things like that. I feel it's a moral imperative, is my feeling. It is our moral imperative uh, to save the creatures with whom we share the earth. Um, uh, that's my feeling. Um, you know, um, I love them. And so part of that love means you want to protect them as well. Um, I find it hard to go around saying, well, we need to save turtles because they um, put nutrients into the soil. And, and uh, you know, if we if we lose them, something might break in the ecological uh, cycles, you know, where they are present. Yeah, that's probably true, but I don't think that's as compelling an argument uh, for saying that they share the earth with, with us. They are living, breathing, sentient beings. Um, they've been here for, you know, 250 million years. We've only been here for two or three million. God damn it, they need to live. Uh, and, and we are destroying them. And we also have the power to protect and preserve them. And that's what we need to do. Uh, it's, it's sort of... Um, it's our responsibility, I think. Um, so for me, it comes down to sort of a, a, a moral thing, I guess. That's interesting. And it's, a, it's something, too, in talking to people. I mean, I've, I've been personally interested in turtles and tortoises for a long time, since I was real little. And just mm -hmm. talking to people early on, you hear kind of that justification for benefit to humanity yeah. in terms of physical benefits, but yeah. that you really, as you get more, I guess, involved, you start to realize a lot of the people that are really doing the work that, that, that moral imperative is the thing that motivates them. So mm -hmm. that, yeah. Um, so, so something too, that, that you sort of spearheaded and work on is the annual, the, not annual, but the checklists um, with all of the turtles and tortoises and, that's something that all of us have definitely, I mean, it's incredible to see that and to have something like that to just, I mean, for hours, just flip through the pages and look at the pictures and read all of it and over and over again. But what goes into doing something like that? Because that oh must be. My God. <laughs> well, if you follow the history of this, this started back in 2007, uh, Brad Schaefer put together a workshop at Harvard. Uh, to look at genetics of turtles. Uh, and he got a little bit of money and brought a bunch of us together. And I was living right outside Harvard at the time. Uh, and so I was there as well. And we decided, one of the things we decided to do, and Jim Parham is the guy who pushed for it, he said, 
we really need to put together like a checklist of turtles. You know, what are the, the species that we recognize as, as being, you know, accepted? And so we put out this really tiny little checklist uh, with almost no detail whatsoever. Um, and it was a good start. It was a really good start. We annotated some of them and um, we made the sort of the groundbreaking um, decision that we would not automatically just decide what's a species and what isn't and whether it's a subspecies or a species, but we, we developed the concept of, of listing some taxa as or. You know, this is either species A or species B, or it may be considered a subspecies, or it may be in this genus, or it may be in that genus. And, and we hope by doing that, that people would read the checklist and say, oh, hang on. Uh, what do you mean you don't know which genus this is? Well, I'm going to work on it and figure out which genus it is in so we can solve this little problem area. And that's the approach we've taken pretty much all along. Little by little, we've gotten away from that a little bit because as the checklist has gotten better and better, um, and as it's become more and more of a standard reference, um, right now we're, CITES is considering making it the standard reference for turtles uh, for all, you know, um, legal uh, aspects of, of CITES, et cetera. And as a result, they don't like equivocation. They, they, they want just, you know, say, tell, tell us what it is. Tell us what the name is. And so we've begun to change that a little bit. But this thing grew um, in the sense that um, for a while we did it, an update every year. And then it became every two or three years. Uh, and the last one, I think, was a four-year um, uh, lapse from the previous one to the current one. Um, and once you have something on paper or, you know, in uh, a document, I use InDesign uh, uh, for, for, for doing this. Once it's in there, it's really easy to begin to update. And you just add stuff to it. Uh, and you decide, you know, this year we're adding you know, type localities. And, and uh, next year we're adding type specimens. And uh, what I'm doing right now uh, for the next edition, which should be out next year, is we're mapping all type localities, which we've never done before. We've included type localities, but we never mapped them. Uh, and uh, when you start mapping type localities, as opposed to just listing them, all of a sudden you see, holy shit, you know, the species, you know, that's widespread over all of Pakistan and, and India, across the Ganges, Brahmaputra, and into the Indus. The type locality for the species name is, is over there in the Indus. And, but everything's over here in the Brahmaputra. And so what the hell is going on? And so you begin to, to think about, well, I think we need to do some genetics on this species and see what the hell is going on. Why, you know... Uh, what's going on over here in the eastern part of the range uh, when the type specimen is over there in the western part of the range. So that's the thing that we're adding now. We're also adding etymologies uh, for names um, and uh, a bunch of other things. So um, I work on maps constantly. You know, um, there's nothing like sitting down with, uh, with a map and uh, where you have known localities and you begin to start looking at the zoo geography of the whole thing and, and most freshwater turtles are uh they're um, you know drainage basin dependent um uh and uh, uh you start looking at this carefully and start realizing holy shit you know uh, although we've got this 
showing this massive range, it's actually not massive at all. It's just limited to these narrow um, you know, uh, basins. Uh, and there's no localities at all in the hills between the various, you know, uh, river basins. So that's the kind of stuff I'm working on right now. But it's, it's fun. Uh, I'm retired from medicine. So, you know, I don't have to worry about patients or surgeries or anything like that. And so I sit here in my office with the view of the Vermont mountains uh, and I work on turtle distribution maps and, and the checklist and, and, and other things uh, as well. It's uh, it's a very rewarding um, kind of work. I, I love it. Love it. It's an interesting way plotting all of the type localities on a map with current or contemporary localities and then comparing it. That's that's uh, yeah. at a large scale. That's a, a cool thing to do. Yeah, For, yeah I'm enjoying it. Yeah. And, and so you also in those checklists include the IUCN, the listings for species. Absolutely. And, uh, societies, listings, et cetera. Uh, yeah, so that's right. a good guide to, you know, where we are. And, and one of the big things, of course, is, as you know, the specialist group is supposed to do official red list assessments. As you also know, the specialist group, even when I was chair, um, were painfully slow on doing that. Uh, there are still assessments out there that were done back in 1996 that have not been updated since then. So what we've done uh, is we've done unofficial assessments as well, because doing an official assessment takes a, it's, it's a lot of work, a lot of work, uh, but we've done unofficial assessments as well. So the checklist um, looks at not only the official assessments, and the history of those assessments, but also what we believe based upon our provisional assessments, what the status really is. Um, and, and that helps, that's sort of like a, a roadmap to where we're going. Uh, and it's also, it also helps us in terms of um, pushing forward to, to do red list assessments right now. Vivian Paez is our new red list coordinator. And because of the CITES listings that just passed in November and have now gone into effect now in February, we are looking at updating red list assessments officially uh, for all the species that were now listed by CITES and using that as an opportunity also to look more at uh, the South and Central American uh, species that have um, never been evaluated or were evaluated back in 1996. We're fairly up to date on the uh, on the Asian and Southeast Asian species as, as a result of various workshops we held over in Asia over the last several years. But South America and the Americas in general, not the U.S., but uh, Mexico, Central America, and South America um, are, are really behind. And so uh, the last few days we've been uh, focusing on, on putting together a series of workshops uh, and raising funds uh, and, and uh, um, getting people to volunteer to take the lead on uh, producing uh, uh, red list assessments for all these American species. And, and frankly, that's what drives conservation as well. As you well know, uh, there are a lot of funding agencies out there uh, that can help provide support for people who want to work on turtle conservation issues. But in general, if your species is not critically endangered or endangered, they're not going to give you any money. And so we need to know which species are truly endangered 
um, the Turtle Conservation Fund is like that. Mohammed bin Zayed Fund is like that. Um, if if you want to work on these species, uh, um, it helps if it has a endangered uh, um, threat assessment uh, associated with it. Right, that makes sense. But so so kind of I guess changing the the sort of subject maybe to more field stories and adventures. Uh, earlier, you mentioned some of the species you were describing, worked on describing. I'm I'm fairly curious what it was like, because uh, there's always the, the adventures of going in the field and finding those things. And in certain cases, like with um, Caledonia parkeri, that was mostly museum specimens. But you've also been on a lot of different trips to New Guinea and, and many different places, I'm sure. Yeah. But um, what what was it like to to go on some of those trips to other areas to, to find things and, and experience the habitat. Well, Papua New Guinea is one of my two favorite places on earth. Uh, I loved being there. Um, I spent most of my time up in the highlands where there are no turtles. That's because I was doing medicine in the highlands. That was my ticket to get there, uh, was to, to go to a hospital and work in a hospital in the highlands. But as a result, I made contacts with people from all over uh, and was able to spend uh, significant time in the lowlands, specifically in the western province around Daru. Um, and, yeah, it, it, to me, seeing those kinds of places, um, interacting with local people, natives and uh, a lot of local expats too, you know, Australians and Brits, uh, who were living in Papua New Guinea at the time, because the country had only barely become independent two years earlier. Um, to me, that was a, an amazing experience. Lived, uh, stayed in, in, in grass huts, um, uh, talked to people who remembered seeing the first white people who had ever showed up there, uh, under, not knowing you know, whether they were people or gods. Um, truly amazing um, to see the the rapid change from almost a Stone Age culture um, um, transforming into a, a modern society, um, and then collecting turtles. Um, now, I didn't personally collect turtles in any of those places. I wasn't diving into lagoons or setting traps or anything like that. What we did is we'd walk into villages and we'd say, "We're interested in turtles. Do you have any turtles?" Uh, and people would come to us and say, oh, yeah, here's here's what, a turtle I just, you know, collected in the swamp next door here. And I was keeping it, planning on eating it, you know, for Sunday dinner uh, or keeping it as a pet or whatever. So that's how I collected. I was not a field biologist in the sense of, of actually trapping my own specimens. Um, that's something I never did in tropical places. And, and frankly, that's hard to do, um, especially if you're in an area where uh, you are viewed with suspicion uh, and uh, uh, you don't necessarily have the right uh, to throw traps into areas where other people may be trying to catch their re own resources that they want to use. So for us, for me, for Russ, uh, we did a lot of the stuff together. Yeah, uh, it was usually a matter of walking into a village saying we'd love some turtles um, and kids were often would often collect them. They'd bring them to us, you know, and they'd tell us where they got them. And then you'd pay them um, small amounts of money uh, for these turtles. Um, 
Now, that was the old days. I'm not sure that's a, a good thing any longer because now, of course, there's a lot of middlemen who pay a lot of money for turtles and then they end up in uh, uh, in the uh, consumption industry and the pet industry uh, down the road. So not necessarily a good, good thing to do any longer. Now, probably the better thing to do is um, uh, to, um, if you get a hold of specimens, is to photograph and to take tissue samples um, and let them go. You uh, wrote a paper that described a lot of the, the the species you were finding there. I'm curious, like, how has the trade dynamics or um, certain, I guess, abundances or estimates of what was there changed with time? Or are they still, yeah, yeah. Or are there any still outstanding mysteries that, uh, that yet to be solved? There are certainly mysteries that remain to be solved. Um, um, not as much in Papua New Guinea as in uh, Papua, the Indonesian side of the island, in, in Papua and West Papua. Uh, and uh, Bill McCord and his people uh, are still uh, pulling um, turtles out of uh, the western half of, of New Guinea. Uh, and uh, they keep describing uh, uh, new species and subspecies, uh, which we're having trouble with in, in the in the checklist deciding whether they're really new or not um yeah, and, yeah but there's a lot of there's a lot of the diversity there especially in the in the western part of new guinea um even some diversity in the northern part of papua new guinea that i think is still remains undescribed i'm not sure what's going on between the ramu valley and the markham valley uh the two elsayas there may in fact be different um, you know, there's uh, what what the hell is going on out in the Solomon Islands? There's been some uh, Emiduras, I believe, introduced out there. McCord has now described them as a new species. I'm I'm not convinced, but um, the trade out there, I do not know what the level of trade is currently. Uh, uh, back in the uh, uh, about 20 years ago, there was significant trade um, going across the border from Papua New Guinea into uh, uh, Indonesian Papua, Papua, but I don't know. I've lost touch with the, uh, the, the guy, uh, Vagi Janarupa, that I worked with back then. So I don't know right now what's going on exactly. That's interesting. We've, we've uh, had John Can on in the past, and he oh, kind of sure, spoke John, to John, friend. Yes, yeah. Uh, he spoke to some of the the mysteries in New Guinea. It seems like, yeah, in the West, there's a lot of uh, sort of there's a lot of undescribed diversity there, right? Yeah, yeah. and and um, you also did a lot of work in South America with uh, Acantha Kellys too, and that that um, always we've had a lot of people talk about their trips there and just some of the um, even non turtle related uh, roadblocks or uh, adventures. I'm curious in in the process of going to maybe South America, what were some of the most interesting things, turtle or non turtle related, that you sort of came into uh, contact? Uh, the, the most interesting thing, of course, was my first trip back in 1971, uh, where Russ and I started in Bogota. We went to Leticia. Uh, we hitched a ride on a on a uh, um, a small plane from Leticia to Manaus and a, a military transport from Manaus to um, uh, Belén after spending time up the Rio Quieras where I got my Jabuchi. Uh, and then we took an overland bus trip, a 51-hour bus trip 
from Belém down to Brasilia on, on the old dirt road that crossed the Amazon back in those days. Now it's all asphalt. Um, but um, that trip, although I got the the, the yellow foot of tortoise, we did not do any real turtle work until uh, I got to uh, Rio and Sao Paulo. And frankly, my South American studies early on, they were taxonomy based. And so you, most of your work when you're doing taxonomy is based on museum specimens. First grant I ever got, you know, uh, I applied for a grant uh, to, to study um, museum specimens of Kila turtles in, in, uh, in Brazilian uh, museums uh, and uh, the American Philosophical Society gave me a small grant for which I was like, oh my God, I can't believe I got money to study turtles. Uh, and so I went down and uh, spent time in museums. I've never collected wild turtles in South America, unfortunately. I mean, I'd love to. Uh, we were down in the Pantanal um, uh, last year. Um, in one of the wildlife reserves there for uh, for meetings of the desired fund. Um, we, we, we put out traps, trying to find, you know, macrocephala, acanthocules, macrocephala. We were not able to successfully trap them. Uh, did get some new data from other people who had photographed them and caught them. So, you know, although we did, you know, spend some time up in... Uh, um, dos Guimarães, uh, just north of Cuiabá, uh, where we were able to collect uh, Mesoclemys Hagi in the wild in these small little uh, rocky stream beds, you know, with you know a half a meter of depth, it, absolutely incredible. Uh, so uh, that was fun. Um, but the Kila turtles, which is my interest in South America, are poorly known not well collected the genetics is still very rudimentary um you know there's been a couple of new species described recently uh based on very um i don't know limited genetics data uh and we're still not sure you know how real they are or not or whether they're just you know a separate uh, uh, lineages that maybe do not deserve a new name um yeah so my taxonomic work in in South America has not been um, as exciting, uh, one would say, as, as you might hope. Uh, not a lot of field work there. I mean, it's sort of a different type of exciting in, in working with... Um, with oh, well, let, let me tell you, I mean, discovering macrocephala, we discovered macrocephala uh, from specimens that were imported into a pet shop in, in Miami. You know, that's how we discovered it. Holy shit, look at these things. Oh my God, we've never seen anything with such a big head. You know, and, and then we pursued it further. And, and sure enough, we got specimens, uh, other specimens from uh, other museums that have been collected in the wild, you know, in the last century and, and more recently. Uh, and little by little, we put the picture together that this is actually a new species. Um, and uh, then we got some live specimens, but geez, I've never seen it in the wild. I would love to. Oh my God, that'd be amazing. What sort of analytical methods were you using with these early sort of morphological? Morphologic and morphometric. Okay. Uh, my feeling always was if you can describe a new species back in those days, you need to demonstrate that there are skeletal differences, at least in the skull, most importantly. Um, uh, if you didn't have skeletal differences that you could quantify and, and, qualify and, 
and 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 uh, describe adequately, then you didn't have a new species. Um, color change, you know, phenotypic color um, differences, etc. I thought that was the realm of subspecies, but that was that was old thinking in the days before uh, genetics. Now, you know, what what determines uh, a species? What determines a evolutionarily, you know, um, lineage that deserves a name, damn, uh, I find it really hard. And that's why in the turtle taxonomy uh, working group, our, in our checklist, uh, we have now geneticists who work with us, you know, uh, Schaefer, George's, um, Gallego, Garcia is joining us, Flora Ilo is joining us for the next ed edition. You know, Peter Paul Van Dyke is still not a geneticist. John Iverson does some genetics. Roger Board did no genetics at all, but but he has passed. So um, it becomes more and more a matter of interpreting the genetics and what's an adequate genetic analysis versus uh, what's just uh, genetic noise. Um, and I'm not as good at that. So I'm, I'm I tend to be the person who organizes it and puts it all together but the genetics expertise comes from other people which is the way it should be yeah right that's it's it's almost and it's sometimes too it seems like the morphology sort of camp is like okay the genetics is um completely intuitive but that actually becomes a lot more convoluted <laughs> it's just what the the distinctions and even when you've got a good sample of of uh loci or base pairs you're going to analyze it still is a hard thing to analyze but yeah, so that's um, really interesting. We, well, we, I, let me tell you, I admire the people who understand genetics and, and can talk it and, and say, well, this, this, is not, this is not significant. What, you got just these two, you know, mitochondrial, uh, you know, uh, uh, DNA differences? Not enough, you know. Um, but many years ago, that was enough to describe new species. And, 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 and the, the, the focus is changing, the... the uh, you know how people are defining things is changing constantly and it's uh for us in the checklist that creates a problem especially when you have people like mccord describing things uh you know based just on morphology and and, and you don't know what the hell's going on um and maybe not so much him but joseph uni uh, who does a lot of these descriptions um you know so we've been really struggling with that Right. And it, it, something kind of related to is some work you've done in, in the skeletal anatomy sort of makes sense, given uh, your orthopedic yeah. surgeon, that kind of that interest um, with the the leatherbacks. You've studied something similar, but more actually like centered around the bones and yes. and and kind of how those are vascularized. Maybe you can sort of expand on that work that you did and, and how that's well, unique to yeah, leather. That was, that, was, that was really cool stuff. Uh, when I became an orthopedic resident, um, uh, the, the chief of the orthopedic section, uh, John Ogden, it was very interested in comparative osteology. And we were you know, on the coast of, uh, uh, of Connecticut. I was at uh, Yale New Haven. Um, and he was collecting marine mammals. Uh, to look at uh, marine mammal uh, bone growth. Uh, and uh, so we joined the Marine Mammal Stranding Network. And so we were getting notified when marine mammals were stranding so that he and his people could collect these bones and bring them into the lab and he could study the comparative osteology. Well, with the marine mammals, we started getting leatherback turtles as well. 
and I still remember the day when we, we brought in a, um, a freshly dead leatherback turtle and we brought it up to the orthopedic lab and, uh, and we cut the flippers off and uh, exposed the bones and, uh, and got, got a, a big um, humerus out, just the humerus itself and a nice cartilage on the ends. And we decided to run it through a bandsaw, a big bandsaw is there for cutting bones. And we did a longitudinal slice of the bone and we opened it up and holy shit, there were blood vessels in the cartilage. You know, mammals don't have blood vessels in cartilage. None of us humans, marine mammals, none of us. We do not have blood vessels in cartilage. The leatherback has huge, thick cartilage with lots of very red, very obvious blood vessels running into the cartilage. It's totally different way of doing things. Now, there are some other animals that do similar. Some birds do it similarly. Um, and dinosaurs did it differently, did it that way as well. Um, the, the large marine uh, turtles, Protostegia and Archelon, et cetera, the extinct Cretaceous turtles, they did it the same way. Not that we have actual, you know, um, fossilized cartilage from them, but uh, when you look at the bone underlying the cartilage, you can see all the uh, openings where blood vessels have come through the bone that are clearly heading up into cartilage, and, and the leatherback does the same thing. So it's a very different kind of of a, of a way to, um, you know, to um, provide nutrition to their cartilages. Uh, and why do they have the thick cartilage? Um, don't know. But because they have the thick cartilage, they need a blood supply. Otherwise, the cartilage would die because it can only you can only get diffusion from the joint um, fluid to, for a very thin cartilage to keep it alive. So they've developed these really thick cartilages, and so they need blood for it. I don't know the reason why they need the thick cartilage, um, but that's why they have the uh, blood vessels in them. And, and the leatherback's a cool animal, uh, essentially uh, almost endothermic, almost warm-blooded, not quite. It, we call it homo-iothermic. Uh, which means it's a little bit warmer than seawater, but not as warm as a mammal. Um, and it has these cool countercurrent uh, um, um, vasculature in their flippers that um, warms the blood that's coming back from the tips of the flippers. Um, they're an amazing animal. They, uh, they have a huge um, pulmonary artery sphincter that allows them to cut off the blood supply to their lungs when they dive deep. Uh, and thereby keeping the blood flowing in their body and not going to their lungs because they don't need the lungs when they're diving deep. And they dive deeper than any other known animal uh, or any known other known uh, turtle. Um, so they're 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 I think they're the coolest turtle of all. You know, even cooler than than Keladina. Yeah, that that that's. Um... They are fascinating animals, especially I think one of the papers where you talk about this, you compare the the size difference from a hatchling to the full grown adult and just. The yeah, and I, I, I made a prediction there that I thought they matured in three to six years. I was wrong, uh, but it turns out that they, they do mature faster than anything else. Uh, I think it's about 10 to 11 years. Uh, I misinterpreted some some growth lines. Uh, I'm not upset about that. It stimulated a lot of other work. Um, and uh, we've shown that uh, leatherbacks are the fastest maturing of all the uh, of all the sea turtles, and it's it's huge. It grows incredibly fast, absolutely incredible. 
So have you done work as well with sort of the, the using sort of bone to age the animals as well? Is it? I was trying to do that with the little bit back, yes. Uh, what we found uh, uh, in cross-sections of humeri were, were absolutely obvious growth cycles uh, that looked like there was rapid growth and then a slowdown in growth and then rapid growth and a slowdown in growth. And uh, I interpreted those at the time as being indicative of uh, feeding patterns uh, so that uh, when they were feeding uh, at high latitudes, they would be growing faster. Uh, when they were um, migrating to lower latitudes, uh, they would not be feeding as much because they, they mainly feed on jellyfish in the northern latitudes. Um, I don't know at this point exactly what those um, cyclical growth rings mean because I had interpreted them as, as being annual. They're probably not annual. They may be, you know, biannual or you know, every two or three years. I'm not sure. More people need to work more on it. Yeah, that's very interesting. And it, I mean, anatomically, um, that is sort of an like skeletal growth is something that it, it's almost like for, for a lot of people you think about it, the skeleton is something that's sort of not, it doesn't change much, but that's actually happening. And, it, and it's sort of a complex interplay and in different tissues and, and how, what, what sort of process leads to that? And as the animal's maturing, how does the skeleton actually reform? What sort of cells are involved and what, what's the, what is the process that underlies that? Yeah, well, you know, it, interestingly enough, I, I did some work with my dad. Uh, he was an electron microscopist, uh, and his specialty was microvascularization, capillary growth in, in mammals primarily. Um, I, I got him to look at uh, the capillaries that were growing into cartilage in leatherback turtles. And what he found, and we published this together, uh, was that at the, the, the tip of the capillary that was moving into the cartilage, there were cells that were killing the cartilage cells, eating it their way into the cartilage. Um, so the um, uh, chondroclasts at the tip of these uh, uh, little uh, blood vessels. Uh, and they were putting out some sort of a protein or something that caused gradual cell collapse just anterior or just beyond the tip of the actual capillary. So the the cellular death was was just in advance of the actual capillary tip. Um, who knows why? Uh, it was simply a way to now feed that cartilage, to provide nutrition to the cartilage as the animal was growing. Uh, so, and these animals were growing very fast, so these blood vessels had to keep up with destroying part of the car cartilage so that they could penetrate the cartilage to get nutrition to the rest of the cartilage. Um, but but it's, what's interesting there is that it was the kind of, you know, one could imagine um, that whatever substance that was that was being secreted uh, could in fact potentially be used to, you know, destroy cartilage, for example, cartilage tumors, osteochondromas, you know, osteosarcomas, you know, that kill humans and dogs and, and other animals. Um, so potentially there's, there could be some usefulness there. 
That's interesting. That That's sort of an interesting biomedical. That's something I'm interested in as well as sort of the genetic aspect of how can you harness some of the turtle's ability with anti-aging, those sort of things. Anti-aging is a huge thing. Oh, my God, yeah. You know, if, if you wanted a really interesting conversation, you should think about talking to Justin Congdon uh, about uh, aging uh, in uh, in turtles. And, uh, they they do not demonstrate senility. Um, they... Uh, um, you know, the, the older a female turtle gets, the more fecund she becomes, you know, uh, more eggs she produces. It's, it's amazing. No menopause in female turtles. They just get, you know, uh, they just produce more and more the older they get. Yeah, in hearing about different sort of takeaways like that um, for for breaking up tumors, uh, that that's something I hadn't even thought about. That's a really interesting sort of interdisciplinary takeaway. You think yeah. that... With captive turtles, a lot of time you get pyramiding. Do you think there could be a similar process where you've got bones being kind of degraded by something that's lacking in a, a diet that's leading to a cascade where you get breakdown of the underlying bone? I mean, it, good question. I, I don't know enough about you know, vitamin D and C and you know um, uh, the uh, phosphorus, uh, um, nitrogen balance, etc., which seems to be the underlying cause. For pyramiding, uh, but I cannot speak intelligently about that. I guess they are sort of unre—they're they're unrelated and similar only in the fact that it's bone. But that, that's, yeah, very interesting. Um, yeah, so I, I guess we can sort of start to kind of wrap things up. Um, but we've got—we like to close out with uh, some sort of final questions, I guess. And one of the thing I'm—I think we were all sort of curious about too is the you've done a lot of poetry and recently came out with a book in that area. Yeah. yeah. And it, in, I think in science, like you had mentioned before, there's sort of that emotional appeal. Um, and that, that gets lost a lot of times in, in science, but it, it's relevant. But why, like, how, how do you see poetry sort of fitting into the realm of science? And poetry is an expression of our passion for whatever it is we're working with is my feeling. And so in order to be successful in conservation, conservation is about people. It's not about species. Yes, we're protecting species. But in order to be successful with conservation, you have to reach people. Conservation is 99% people. And so my feeling, and a lot of people have said this to me, if you're going to be successful in promoting conservation by talking to people, you have to demonstrate and you have to come across as being passionate about what it is you're doing. Yes, you can be a scientist. Yes, you can come out with facts. But if you're not passionate about wanting to protect these animals, if you're not demonstrating that passion, if you're not, if you're not wearing your passion on your sleeve, then I think you have less of an effect. And so uh, very, I mean, I started doing poetry because I love doing it. And then someone said to me, it was at a conference in, in Florida, uh, there was a guy there who had organized the, the conference. He said to me, you know, what's important about you doing poetry is that shows that you're passionate about this work that you're talking about. Um, and that makes a huge difference in terms of how people interpret your motives and your reason for wanting to do these things. And, and poetry is the, um, it, it's the voice of passion, usually. So, uh, yeah, I love it. Um, I'm not saying I'm any good at it, uh, but I, but I do enjoy doing it. 
reading through the uh, Jack and I got the book this summer because we were at working with the Turtle Conservancy and reading through it was it was cool actually to see how many different people doing field work or were involved with it and some cool uh, stories that are conveyed in in not many words but you really get kind of a a full immersion. Well, that's that's nice of you to say that. I appreciate hearing that. That's nice. Yeah, it was it was a nice sort of break from the analytical, which is obviously good, but th this was kind of a new thing. Analysis is critically important, um, but I, I I thoroughly believe you need to mix that with with some passion. Yeah, I guess yeah. One, one more thing I'm curious about too is what out of all the trips that you've been on, what was the what is the one that was the most memorable? And that that's always yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, there, there, actually, there have been so many. Uh, I mean, uh, Papua New Guinea for three months was incredibly memorable. The Galapagos with Peter Pritchard, that was only a week. That was incredibly memorable. Uh, Madagascar with Russ and Eric Good and uh, Maurice and Peter Paul flying all around Madagascar, going to Bali Bay, finding a wild, large plowshare in the wild uh, and picking her up and being photographed with it. It's like... Holy Jesus. I mean, there are probably none left there any longer at all. I mean, those kinds of experiences is what leaves you with a sense of, of that you've got to do something about this impending loss that we're facing and that we've already faced. That this, this incredible loss of diversity, these, these incredible um, losses uh, across the globe. You know, it's... Um, yeah, it, it, it leads to inspiration sometimes in a, in a, in a sort of a negative way. Um, but uh, I think those would be the main ones that, that I would point to as being one of my most memorable trips, New Guinea, Madagascar, uh, the Galapagos, uh, uh, those three, I think, for sure. Yeah. That's awesome. And and then sort of the last question we like to wrap wrap up with is um, what's I mean, it could be more than one piece, but one piece of advice that you would have for someone interested in making turtle and tortoise research a, a career. Follow your dreams, follow your passion. Um, you know, that's what I've always done. Um, figure out a way to make a living at the same time. Um, not everyone can make a living doing turtle conservation, but more little by little, more, more and more, there are now organizations where it is possible to make a living being a turtle conservationist. 30 years ago, there wasn't. Now we have the Turtle Conservancy. We have the Turtle Survival Alliance. Uh, we have other similar organizations, Rewild, Conservation International, still doing things like this, WCS. Um, WCS is a very good organization. Uh, a lot of these organizations, you can actually get a job as a turtle conservationist and make a living. Um, and then no matter what job you have, and this certainly is true for me, no matter what job you have, pursue what you're truly interested in on the side. Make yourself a two-track professional uh, where you've got one job doing one thing and you've got another thing that, that truly speaks to your passion where you become an expert in that area and people turn to you and they respect you uh, and little by little that may become the more important part of your dual careers.
that's interesting. So, so stay open to more than one lane of things. Oh my God, yes, yeah. Mm-hmm. We all have the capacity to do more than one thing. You know, right. you may not develop into a you know great golfer or something else. You know, if you you know you may not have as much free time. But to me, that was secondary. You know, um, I loved what I was doing um, and pursued it. Um, and I've never regretted it, you know, and right. I, That's- at, the, at the beginning of your careers, um, do what you have to, to make money, um, do what you love to pursue your passion. Sometimes the two are the same exact thing. Sometimes they're slightly different. Sometimes they're very different. You know, Peter Pritchard, you know, he didn't make a living being a turtle um you know uh, conservationist he made a living you know working for florida audubon society uh and a lot of it he hated but a lot of it was important and then he did the turtles on the side you know um eric good yeah he runs hotels and restaurants you know the turtles is his passion uh rick hudson was a you know a, a zookeeper and, and, and started running the tsa um most of us have dual careers um, and then little by little we focus on what we um, truly value the most and where we feel like we can make a, a big difference and enjoy doing so so that's that would be my advice to you is to um, follow your heart make sure you make some money at the same time so you can afford to follow your heart that's uh we will all take that to heart. That's uh, it's, it, yeah. Thank you for that advice. And um, so we, we also close out, I forgot to mention this in my email, but we like to do a little just for kind of a fun thing. It's also, you learn some obscure facts. We do a little oh. turtle trivia. Oh shit. Um, <laughs> but uh, we, we, I, well, I, I, but we could do this different ways. It depends on what you want to do. Uh, we don't have to do it either. We can just, we can end here, but uh, we, we, if, if you're interested, we can do like a volley where we toss you a question and you can toss you me some questions. questions. Yeah. I don't want right. to toss you any questions. Okay. Well, yeah, we can, we'll uh, yeah, we can. Okay. We'll do that. That works. So I, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I, I didn't even really prepare for that aspect of things. I don't know if anyone, Jack, Jason, yeah, I, I didn't think about that either. So I don't have any questions. I, any I would be ready. One up, but you're gonna uh, just, uh, yeah, it's just obscure stuff. It's always a way to just get things that you, um, one of the previous guests we had on said, it's like the way the, the way to use some of the useless knowledge that we all have. <laughs> so, it's a, but uh, yeah, I'll, I'm I'm trying to think of that for. Well, actually, I, here I, I guess this is a question. If if you want to take a few of them, I'll, I'm happy to take a few. I may not be able to answer them, but I'm happy to take a few. All right. Well, th- okay. This is related. So Jack and I actually were just recently working uh, with the. Uh, alligator snapping turtles uh, just got back yesterday from that in uh, Florida. And uh, those are recently split into three species. What is one of the characteristics that is used to distinguish uh, the, uh, the species? Yeah. The, the, yeah. <laughs> There's something about the anal notch, as I recall. 
There you go. Yeah, you got but it. I don't yeah. recall what exactly it is. And, and Apalachicola was sunk, uh, but I believe someone is getting ready to uh, um, revive it again or, or, or to restore it again. Is that, is that true, Jack? Yeah, yeah, that's about to be split. Uh, yeah, or, Apalachicola or, or, or is coming back. Resurrected Apalachicola? Yeah, yeah, resurrected would be the term. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that, that the caudal notch at the back is the main feature to distinguish between the Swaniensis and the the rest of and, and what is the difference can you and, and can you uh it's so those rear peripheral bones are fused on swaniensis which kind of pulls apart the caudal notch making turning it into a large semicircle while it's okay. more of a small like angular notch in uh and it's not sex related yeah. no it's not sex related it's both uh, you'll see it it's in both in all individuals in a given river hmm. so but that's just the tip of the iceberg of Okay. What's different between them? Yeah. And genetics, uh, are there genetics uh, involved here as well to oh, yeah. resurrecting Apalachicola? Yeah, yeah. A lot. That That's the primary reason that it's being resurrected. It's just all based in genetics. Good, good. And who's, good. Is, is that Travis Thomas leading that or Kevin Engie or who is that? I don't know who's doing, I would, I would think it's, it's Travis. Uh, mm -hmm. But yeah, yeah, it's probably them. Good. Well, looking uh, forward to seeing that get resurrected. Uh, we just listed uh, uh, um, uh, the alligator snapping turtle on CITES, uh, but because CITES uses the old um, the reference by Fritz and Havas from 2007 mm. as the official listing of all officially accepted turtle species, uh, mm. even though they just listed uh, uh, Tominki uh, on CITES, that will include Suaniensis and Apalachicola as well, because Fritz and Havas included both those under um, uh, Tominki. They had not been described at that point. So uh, yeah, all yeah. alligator snappers will be listed, as will normal snapping turtles, you know, common snapping turtles. There's a huge trade in snapping turtles. It has been for a long time. They just want to get a yeah, better handle. Of, they want to get a better handle on some of our friends will get offered thousands of dollars for wild adult alligator snapping turtles. Just thousands. Wow. Yeah, the pet trades. Oh, it's it's insane. Uh, well, and so, and so I noticed you had a question in there. One of the questions was, "What's the the most important thing in conservation? What's the, the thing that we need to focus the most on?" I think the thing we need to focus the most on is trying to figure out how the hell to stop the illegal turtle trade. Uh, it's 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 outrageous, um, you know, how much money is being offered um, and how many um, specimens are being poached and sold and slaughtered. And um, yeah, it's yeah, it, it's mind numbing. It, it's that's the biggest problem. I mean, we're we're working on captive breeding. We're working on protecting areas and, you know, um, habitat restoration. All those things are, are good. But if the illegal poaching and, and, and uh, commercial exploitation of turtles continues, we're going to lose. We're going to lose them all. You know, I look down the road 200 years from now, I think to myself, what the hell are we going to have in 200 years? Will we have, you know, red-eared sliders, painted turtles, maybe snapping turtles, you know? And what the hell else are we going to have? It's, it's, really, it's really disturbing. I, yeah, that's a good point. What, 
what is everything else worth if you're not stopping the the, the, the biggest problem? Yeah. So. Yeah. And you know, and 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 we looked at we look at shifting baselines a lot, you know, and most of us think about, you know, our own lifetimes. Oh, when I was younger, you know, I used to see more turtles, and I don't see quite as many now. So we need to do something. I think we need to start thinking about several generations of us into the future. Like I say, 200 years. What are we going to have in 200 years? 500 years. Will there be any turtles left at all in the wild? Maybe. You know, radiator sliders will probably survive. You know, what else will survive? And what the hell are we going to do about it? Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, no, it's. No. Uh, it's it's not yeah it's sort of sobering to think about but uh well, it's, it's the reality right you know the reality is that uh, you know basically most conservationists i know are long-term pessimists but thankfully most of them are also short-term optimists uh, we can make a difference in the short run but the question is what the hell is going to happen in the long run are we losing the war while winning a few battles along the way i don't know where in in what areas for turtles specifically are are we doing? Do you think we're doing pretty well in terms of conservation? Like where do we have a room for improvement? And in, in... I think we're doing pretty damn well in the U.S. Uh, more and more states are um, you know uh, putting in uh, uh, bans on commercial uh, uh, turtle harvests. Uh, Florida's done it. Maryland's done it. A bunch of them have done it. Uh, there's still a few states where you can um, catch and sell turtles almost uh, ad lib. Um, but I think the U.S. is doing a great job. Australia is doing a good job as well. Um, problem area of Europe, I think, is doing okay. But most of the diversity is in Southeast Asia, uh, Africa, and, and South and Central America, at least South America. Um, and I don't think we're doing as good a job there. No question. It's, right. frankly, it's the developed nations where there's the most loss of habitat uh, and the most uh, development, but also the highest economic development. That's where we seem to be doing the best. And that's, that's hope for the future uh, as um, these other areas that are economically not as well um, advanced um, as they do advance, um, I believe that they will see more and more the value in, in preserving their uh, biodiversity, their habitats, uh, and protecting the species that are their own natural resources uh, and source of uh, local pride. Um, so that's, that's the hope. Uh, I think we're seeing it happen in places like Europe, Australia, and the U.S. Um, it needs to develop more in, in other um not necessarily just developing countries, but in, in the countries that are not quite as well developed as those that I just mentioned. All right. I mean, yeah. And I, I think that that's sort of a, a good place to uh, sort of close out unless you have anything else that you'd want to add. Uh, but uh, yeah, thank you so much for coming on. It's, a, it's an honor to, uh, to talk with you and have this recorded for uh many years now so we'll have we can refer back to it and other people can enjoy it and... well I, let me just say i think it's it's pretty damn cool what you guys are doing uh as i said at the outset when i was at your level you know 
just started college. Uh, I had no idea what I wanted to do. And I certainly wasn't prepared to launch this kind of an effort that you guys have started and are pursuing. And kudos to you, you know, frankly. It, uh, um, I don't think I was as wise when I was your age as you guys are now. And that pretends well for the future. Um, so thank you for doing what you're doing. Um, keep it on, keep it up, keep, keep moving on. Um, and you will make a difference. Um, I mean, that's, that's our purpose in life is to figure out how we make a difference. And I think you guys are doing exactly that. It took me a long time to figure out how to make a difference. Well, yeah, I mean, and, and your work has influenced all of us to, to realize that we'd like to do these sort of things. So thank you. As I was inspired by the people who came before me, Peter Pritchard, and, you know, um, Walter Sox, whom I met early on. Um, these people are amazing. Ernest Williams. Ernest Williams was probably my, my most important mentor. Um, you know, um, so yeah, we, we learn from those who came before us and hopefully we improve upon them and build from there. And you guys are doing that. So thank you. All right. Thank you for coming on Dr. Radin. Um, and hopefully we'll see each other at the next TSA. We'll all yeah, I'll be there in Charleston. No question. Yeah. Unless something happens, you never know. So good and uh thank you thank you all and michael say say hi to your dad for me all right i will <laughs> all right all right this is uh episode 32 uh, we're going to close out thanks for listening <laughs>